from Sports Pro, this is the Playbook Podcast with Matt Rogan. I'm Matt Rogan, and this is the Playbook Podcast, where leaders from inside and outside sport share pragmatic advice for leading and managing through change. Today, we're going to look at governance, and, and that I think can be a scary word for a lot of us. I think I'd probably define it as the framework of authority and accountability that governs how we work. It might sound dry, but as we saw with the recent Super League conversations in football, without it, everything falls apart really pretty quickly. I was delighted to welcome Jane Purden today, who is CEO of Women in Football. Prior to assuming that role, she was Head of Governance and Leadership at UK Sport, and before that, Director of Governance at the Premier League. So she, of all people, really knows what she's talking about. I think, again, it's a conversation an organisation needs to to have with itself to say, what are our values? What are the behaviours we absolutely, as an organisation, do want to role model? We're not going to talk in macro terms about governance in sport today, but instead, try and get a sense of what actually should be happening in your own organisation. Give you a sense, maybe, of how well governed the organisation you work in actually is maybe even some thoughts on what you can personally do to improve it. If the last few weeks in football, but also 10 years in politics and hundreds of years in science or history teaches anything, nothing improves until somebody actually starts by saying, this isn't really the way it has to be. Good morning. Thank you for coming on. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Not at all. I know it's been a busy year. Isn't it? Let alone a, a busy few weeks, um, and maybe we should we should jump straight into that space to to kick off and say, you, you know, it's interesting to have a podcast where we're going to focus in around management and governance, where it feels like the whole industry's been making decisions on the fly for the last twelve months as things have sort of evolved and and just in front of our eyes. Um, but maybe looking back with the benefit of a bit of distance, what have we learned in the last year, do you think, about the importance of governance and where it fits into this crazy old world of ours? What a great question. Um, so I think governance is important in all situations and at all times, because what governance means basically is who decides what. That's all it means. Who decides what? How is power exercised? Who buy? What checks and balances are on them? How do they do it? What do they have to take into account? And you could argue it's never been more important than in a time of crisis and in a time of the unexpected happening. I I, I have something called a, a good governance wheel, which has lots of little bubbles coming off it saying what elements of good governance are. And, and when you put the whole thing together, hopefully it's a picture of, of, of how to exercise power right. And, and one of the little bubbles on it says, be agile. You've got to be agile. Um, and I think certainly speaking from my own experience of our organisation, Women in Football, over the past year, I think we were very agile. Like a lot of organisations, we had the benefit of being small. So it's quite easy to say, OK, all those courses and events we were going to run, let's put them online and get up and running in that within two, three weeks, which is, is what we did. Bigger organisations, it can be more of a challenge, but it's it's no less important. Um other elements which I think have been in play over the past year is, again, one of the other bubbles in my good governance wheel is um, you must talk to your stakeholders. You must understand who your stakeholders are. You must understand what they need. And you must understand how you're going to deliver that to them and also what you need from them. Um, and I think we've seen all kinds of areas, uh, certainly football, um, but you know, even more widely across other areas, that that importance of understanding the people that we all need to to make our stuff happen, and and the people who who need us to do stuff for their stuff to happen. Obviously, in the case of football, we haven't had fans in the stadium. Just coming back now, but fans are the most important stakeholders, right? They're the, they're the most important people in the game. So the fan relationship begins to look a little bit different when they're they're not in the ground. And I, and I guess it's um, you know I speak for myself um, as well in this regard. You know, for, for many of us who um, come up through the industry, an industry that's still young, an industry that can be pretty immature at times. Um, 
let's be honest, you know, it, the G word is is one of those things that can strike fear into all of us because you hear all this stuff in the press about good governance or bad governance in different industries and you think, oh, absolutely no idea how that um, relates to sport. I know we may be a little bit rough around the edges at times. Um, so for those of us who are, who are a bit panicked about governance or, or don't know where to start, you know, what what else is on that is on that wheel that you have? You know, what's what's the one hundred and one? The things we really you think we should really know, whatever our level and whatever sport we work in. Yeah. So I would say the first thing is don't panic. There is a lot mm. of help and expertise out there. Um, it is an area where sport has it hasn't. It's not a kind of ground zero with this. There's a lot of work being done over sport, particularly over the last sort of. 10, five to ten years to to look at governance in sport and that critical question of how is power exercised and is it exercised well so the governance 101 what's it about okay so you need in an organization people to make decisions um, it's a rare organization where you can get everyone to make all the decisions so typically in organizations we have a small group of people that you might call the board or you might call the leadership team or the senior management team, a smaller group of people. And, and experience shows us that normally a, a group of about somewhere between five and ten people are, are is about the right number to make the key, key decisions. Any bigger, it gets a bit unwieldy. Uh, any less than that, you run into risks of kind of groupthink and not enough different views around, around the table. And that's the first that's the first principle of governance have lots of different voices we talk a lot about diversity and when we talk about diversity in those decision making bodies for sure we mean um people uh who are not or, or people who are women people who are black or brown people from different geographical areas etc all of that's super important. Um, but the really critical thing, and in some ways what all of that is trying to drive towards is, is what we call different cognitive diversity. And that's where you have different thinking styles represented around the board table. And thinking styles, we have different thinking styles because we're born that way. Everybody's different. We all know that. People have different personalities. But our thinking styles and our, our kind of take on an issue is also shaped by our um, life experience and that in turn is shaped by the things I've mentioned, our gender, our ethnicity, our socio-economic background. Um, and there isn't a, a decision or an issue in the world that doesn't get better by being a little bit sense checked with other people a business decision i should say um it doesn't get sense checked by by being offered to other people and saying what do you think and and get you know genuine view and give a little bit of, of check and challenge so that that's the first principle um other really key governance principles you know on the basis of you to do three things i think firstly number one diverse decision making teams number two transparency that's really important again those those stakeholders so stakeholder it's it's really simple a, a stakeholder is somebody who can be affected by your decisions and actions or who affects your decisions or actions so it's the the people you have impact on and it's the people who have impact on you that's it that's who your stakeholders are um and it's always a good idea for an organisation to really think about that. Who are the people we impact on? Who are the people, organisations, who impact on us? And that's it. That, that's what we call stakeholder mapping. And it's as simple as that. When you start delving down into it, it begins to throw up some really um, kind of quite, uh, well, interesting and in, in some ways deep. It gives you a deep understanding of what your organisation's about. So taking women in football, if you'd say to me, Jane, who are you stakeholders? And you go, I've got a big map of it. Um, and I won't take you through it all, but number one are the, the women and men who are members of women in football. And they're members of women in football because they work in the game and they want to join the network um, and get the kind of solidarity and the, and the benefits that our membership offers because they believe in our aims. Do they impact on what we do? Yes, of course they do. Uh, because their needs and interests should be driving what we do. Do, do we impact on them? 100%. Uh, 
uh, if we don't deliver what they are um, wanting from us, then they're not going to feel great about their membership. If we do, and we do offer them the network and the, the career development, um, then we're going to have a positive impact on their careers. So that's a really quick example of, of kind of stakeholders and, and understanding who your stakeholders are is, is super important. I think I mentioned earlier that in the case of football, the, the biggest, most important um, stakeholders are the fans. And what I would always say to, to a, a football club or indeed a sports national governing body is be as transparent as you can. Now, again, there are some sporting issues and commercial issues where you want to keep confidentiality because you can actually undermine the organization's mm. interests if you tell the world what you're up to. Um, but, you know, tell your fans who, who who's on the board, who are the owners, what, what, what's the plan, what's the general kind of philosophy. Um, have regular communication and, and contact with them. Make sure they feel their voice is heard. Um, now, there's a lot of debate at the moment, Matt, in the lights of, of issues over the past couple of weeks about fan representation on boards and, you know, fan ownership. And um, my personal take on that is fan representation on board might be the right model. Um, it, it, but again, it, it's for me, it's more about what's the end you want to achieve and how do you, how do you get there? And I think the end is you, you have to understand your fans, communicate with them. They have to feel that you're communicating with them and, and big decisions have to have fan voice in somehow, however you do that. Okay, so we got, we got um, diversity and in, in specifically cognitive diversity, um, transparency. Where, where do you go next with your third? I will say for my next one, um, and this applies to boards, it doesn't necessarily apply to um, staff teams, but independence of view. Um, so what do we mean by that? So most in most sectors, you will find that the, the boards, it's mandatory for them to have something called independent non-executive directors, bit of a mouthful. So I'll break it down. What does each element of that mean? Well, director, starting with the last word, means they're on the board. Independent means that they are, prior to their appointment, kind of unconnected with the organisation. They're not, for example, uh, somebody who's in the senior management team or was in the senior management team because that's not independent. They're not somebody who earns their living from the organisation. They've got a day job somewhere else. They're not someone who's had a significant commercial or contractual relationship with the organisation. It means they absolutely are you know, independent. There's clear blue water between them and the organisation. They could and, and hopefully are people who are 100%, you know, behind it and back its aims and what it's about and what they're trying to achieve but they are they are they don't have a history with the organization mm -hmm. and why is this so important um oh i should say also non-executive what does that mean it simply means that they don't do any of the doing in the organization they they sit at board level and um look at the strategic and, and long-term direction and why is this important well, it, that kind of independence tends to mean that people have a real robustness of view, particularly if they're not reliant on the organisation for kind of the main focus of their lives, the main professional focus, the main money earning focus. And it means that they can be, it can be easier for them than, say, somebody who does earn their living from the organisation to say, do you know what, we're doing this wrong, or I don't agree with that, or let's do it another way. Um, so bringing that independence of perspective in is so important to get that really robust honesty in, in the highest decision-making levels. And what those people often also bring is because they're unconnected with the organisation and, and their, their careers have grown up in somewhere completely different, um, an experience of a different, perhaps a different industry, perhaps a different corporate culture, they bring that as well. And they say, oh, you know, in my company, when we had this issue, we did X, Y, Z. And it might just be that little piece of fresh thinking that that no one's thought of. And it's the one that unlocks things, you know. Um, so independence of view, that's that's um, 
my third one. I was going to say it's a it's a role that I play for um, to do one charitable trustee role and also a, an non-exec director role at the English Institute of Sport, and it's hugely rewarding. It's really nice not to not to need to get into the detail a little bit, and I think it brings out the best in me and a lot of people actually. When you have too many years of experience on the clock, it's really rewarding to be able to share that. But it's also quite nice not to need to to delve two or three levels down into the detail as well. So, anyone considering, it, I, I hugely recommend doing a doing a non-exec yeah. role if you can. Me too. I'm I'm the non-exec chair of something called the Professional Game Academy Audit Company which is the independent kind of standards auditor for all the academies in, in male professional football. And I really enjoy it as well. And I, I totally identify with what you say, Matt. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not there doing the doing. We've got a fantastic general manager, Gareth, who, who is super competent, all of that. And he's got a great team. And I really, really enjoy it. And, and like you, I would encourage people to do it. And it's not just for people who are like super senior in in sport you know there's a growing um uh, school of thought saying for example do you know what we need the voices of young people at board level um because again that's a different perspective and the 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 there's a difference between you know i'm 55 and there's a real difference in life experience and between myself and somebody who's 25 or 30 you know um yeah. And I think a lot of people also think, oh, I'm not ready for that. And they want someone far more senior than me. Not necessarily. Lots of fantastic sport organisations out there want the skills that people who, who work in sport have, you know, be it marketing, be it communications, legal, finance, all of that. Um, so I can't recommend it highly enough. And it's hugely rewarding. Since 2008, Sports Pro magazine has set the standard for the business of sport in print and it keeps on getting better. Every quarter, our outstanding editorial team gets under the skin of the industry, talking to the most important leaders and the most influential thinkers around to take you to the heart of what's really happening in sport and what's coming next. We look at the big ideas, the pivotal themes, and the critical numbers. With powerful storytelling, provocative opinion, and insightful commentary, as well as guides to the deals, the developments, the destinations, and the movers and the shakers, it's your essential industry companion. Head to the shop at sportspromedia.com to subscribe now. Sports Pro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. Very good. Okay, so just to bring us back to the beginning, we've got diversity of, of thought and action, in particular cognitive diversity. We have, uh, we have trans transparency in the way you're operating, decisions are made. We have benefit of an independent perspective. And that's hopefully given you some time to find your fourth, which is? Eth ethical, be ethical. Okay. Um, so be a good citizen, you know, follow the rule of law. But I think it's a little bit wider than, than following the rule of law. I think it's, I mean, it is that, you know, and doing all the things that are supposed to be done of you um, under law or whatever regulations you, you sit under. Most sports organisations have, you know, a, a, a huge load of regulations. I think it goes a little bit further than that. And again, I, I credit football with some good work here. When I think, for example, of the kind of club community organisations, community foundations and trusts that all clubs run, I think they do stunning work in their communities. I, I, in some ways, I think they've been, those, those organisations have been some of the unsung heroes of, of COVID because they, they really have, through yeah. this time, absolutely on the ground in their communities, truly delivered. Um, and those organisations have a moral purpose behind them. Um, so I think that's a good example. And, and what, what is the, uh, the upside for you as an organisation? Well, you, you have the satisfaction of knowing you've done the right thing. Um, but it feeds into other things which are a bit more aligned with your business purpose. You know, you are that critical group of stakeholders, your fans and your local community, you're truly engaging with them and helping with them and, and kind of giving back. Um, and that has all kinds of benefits. You know, you hear their voices. And we talked about how important that was. You understand your, your community. You, you, you know where its heartbeat is at, you know, um, and that's invaluable. Um, so be ethical. My, myself, I think it goes, um, I would also bring into this, and I'd love to see sport engage more with this, um, climate change 
I think sport has a responsibility mm -hmm. to address this. I would, personally speaking, I would love to see um, leading football competitions announce, um, you know, carbon neutral targets. I, I'm a little uneasy, you know, a lot of talk recently about, you know, European Super Leagues and, and FIFA have previously pitched a Club World Cup and we've we've got World Cups, men's and women's. And we all enjoy those um, comp uh, these sort of global and continental competitions, the clubs and national teams. Of course we do, but I'm a little bit uneasy in this day and age when we, we know what's happening to the planet of, of all, you know, just the carbon load of all of that. Um, and does it sit yeah. easily with what we know that we need to do as a species? So, and, and football, as we all know, can, can be such a kind of leader. You know, when it gets it right, it can set so much set the right tone and, and kind of lead the debate on some of these questions. When it gets it wrong, boy, does it get it wrong, <laughs> almost because people expect it to, to behave well. So I would love to see football do um, more on this. So we, you talked, touched a little bit on the role on uh, the structure of a board and the role of a of a non-exec director, independent non-exec director. Maybe if we continue the sort of one hundred and one thorn theme for a minute, can you give us a bit of a sense of so what else is going on on that board? So you have you might have the chief executive on the board representing the management team. Um, some boards might have the CFO present as well. Some might not. Um, and I guess, of course, um, you also have a have a chairman who or chair, I should say, who might be executive or non-executive. Um, what, what do you notice about the way that boards are structured now compared to how, how they might have been previously? And how do you how do you offer, how do you notice really successful boards operating in this regard? Yeah. So I my previous role at UK Sport, I did a lot of work with the um, national governing bodies of sport who receive public funding and the English Institute of Sport, which you sit on mm -hmm. that is one. Um, and we introduced something called the, the Code for Sports Governance, which um, set out a, a framework for what boards have to look like. So I'll talk about that. I'll talk about it in the context of, of national governing bodies. Now, what you tend to find with some national governing bodies, not all, is that you you still have, and this is quite an old old school model for, for a national governing body, what we call representative directors. So um, if you have a sport like, you know, British Tiddlywinks, the, the British Tiddlywinks Association is the national governing body for, for Tiddlywinks, they may still have representatives on the board from, from different kind of variations or editions of tiddlywinks like you know the the, the alpine tiddlywinks people the, the people who like to play at mountains might might have a board director the the the, the para tiddlywinks representing the, the 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 para version and you know sending people to the paralympic games they might have a voice and so you tend to get that a little bit I understand why yeah. um, that's the case, because it's like what we talked about with fans, that you how do you get those voices at board level? But not every sports national governing body um, follows that model. It tends to make the boards quite big, around 10, which personal opinion, and, and some chairs in sport would, would challenge me on this, and who say I'm right, personal opinion, I think that's a little big. Um, I think for a sort of medium-sized national governing body, kind of five to six, maybe six, six to eight um, is, is about the right number. So you have, um, then what you need to do is make sure you've got all the kind of skills and experience that you need represented around the, the board table. Um, those could be business skills. Um, it could be you know, an organisation is saying, OK, what we need to do is rebrand, you know, come up with a new logo, think about how we kind of present ourselves to the world and, and show up and our tone of voice and all of that. Oh, but look at our board. We haven't got anybody who actually understands that world on it. So um, let's go and recruit for somebody with that set of skills, because that's what we need right now. Um Another organisation might might do the same exercise of thinking what skills are we lacking and 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 
it could be let's go back to the British Tiddlywinks Association they might be thinking goodness we 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 really don't understand kind disability tiddlywinks and para tiddlywinks we, we just don't understand it we as a board that's not good because we're responsible for overseeing that addition of our sport mm-hmm. maybe we need somebody who does understand that on our board um typically the business skills you need at board level of finance i think that's probably the key one um yes an understanding of sport but again i i've worked with some fantastic directors of sport organizations who don't come from sport yeah and they really bring something uh, unique and different to it um so an understanding of sport finance um other skills to kind of look at are um yeah legal um hr marketing comms media government you know who's how how do we if we're a national governing body and a kind of key organization in the sporting landscape and, and government is often on our case <laughs> or we rely on government because they fund us do we have either on the board or in the team someone who understands how to speak to government you know um and you these so typically with a sports governing body it's a blend of independent directors and kind of people who, who are appointed from within the sport when you look at private clubs, which includes most football clubs, it tends to be different because these are private companies. Yeah. Um, so they tend not to have independent non-executive directors. Some do, uh, and I think quite successfully, and I, I would always encourage a football club to, to, to go down that route. You tend to find that the owner, and often it's a single man, and it is usually a man, not entirely. There are a couple of women who own clubs, but they they either are on the board or will put their representatives on the board. Um, major investors often have a right to sit on a board. Who else? Historically, we used to see the broadcasting companies had put people on club boards at a time when the broadcasting landscape was shifting off terrestrial and going back kind of twenty years now. The football club boards tend to be. Again, if I'm brutally honest, and it's difficult to generalise because not everybody is is different, and everybody's board is different, but but they tend to not be subject to the same kind of questions of like, do we have independent directors? Have we got true diversity around the table, both by reference to what people yeah. look like and their life experience and their genuine cognitive diversity? And it's interesting to me that. Actually, you know, in those private businesses where they are um, teams and clubs, I, I I notice a lot more focus on cognitive diversity, um, a lot a lot more focus on independent view, a lot more focus actually on transparency in the performance side of the organisations. Um, I heard um, Matthew Syed speak last week about his Rebel Ideas book, which is a fantastic look at cognitive diversity, and he was telling me about or telling the audience, so it wasn't a one-to-one, sadly, um, about some of the work on cognitive diversity and performance that Gareth Southgate's England team do, where they have a group of assembled experts in performance, but slightly different sides of performance, just for Gareth and his team to challenge their thinking to eke out that extra one, two, three percent. Uh, you know, famously, I think he's looked at American football and all sorts of different areas, so just independent views, just to try and push performance the England team on, and and it does seem that a lot of private businesses in the in the sports space aren't yet quite as enlightened maybe yeah some of the doing some of the things in the boardroom that some of their performance colleagues might be doing yeah um it, you looked at so your role at uk sport i guess you, you inherited um the challenge of working with all sorts of organizations that that literally for more than 100 years had been in some cases been set up in certain ways not sure about the Tiddlywinks Association, but many of them would have been set up in, in, in you know, with, with governance from, from different centuries, actually. Um, and I guess now in, in, in women in football, you have the luxury, uh, maybe, of being able to still work the governance of your own organisation a little bit and still try and try and sort of continue to formulate and reform based on how the organisation's moving and evolving. Um, which is easier, working, sort of trying to rework something that's more than a century old or or, or trying to stay fluid um, with, a, with a much newer organisation? They're very different challenges to work on from a governance perspective. 
Yes, I think um, I think some bigger organisations. I think it can be like turning the, the juggernaut around at sea. Uh, sorry, the oil tanker around at sea. Turning the oil tanker around at sea, and, and thinking that one that got stuck in the Suez Canal, and then it can get stuck. <laughs> And it's a major yeah. effort to, to release it. You know, it's, it can be huge. Um, and that is not necessarily connected to the will within the organisation of, of wanting to, to change. Sometimes that's there loud and clear in a, in a big organisation. Um, it's just that there are so many movable parts. And, and actually, one of the kind of governance 101 elements, you know, the need to be transparent and be consultative, which is important, but to do that properly can take time. Um, and I saw some governing bodies who were going through the process, you know, the, the chair and the CEO doing roadshows around the country to go and engage with people and explain why these changes were necessary um, and why they had to be brought in. They really worked it. And I, I credit them with their hard work to do that. Um, so, so bigger organisations, I think it can be slower. I think it can be harder to unpick some of those cultures which maybe have been around for decades maybe even for over a century that like but we've always done it this way why would we change and not just that Matt but also I think people have a genuine and, and understandable fear that that are we going to throw the baby out with the bathwater? you know some of the stuff that's great about this organization yeah. we're going to lose that smaller organizations um I, I, again I think they can be more agile but they can be uh, the, the challenge you can have with a smaller organisation, particularly a kind of voluntary one, um, you know, small sports club or something like that, is like how well resourced is it? You know, does it have the resource to to, to do this? And um, again, if it's been run by volunteers who are, um, you know, absolutely out of the goodness of their hearts giving up their, their evenings and weekends, but they're a bit self-selected and do they have the right skills to, to bring change about? So it's a mix. Um, I, if you trust me, and again, it's it's so hard to generalise because I've experienced brilliant small organisations who've absolutely been on this and been been agile and and got it and just done it. I've experienced big organisations who've transformed themselves. So it can depend. But when I look back to that whole process, and, and I think also it's, it's important to say before we started, you know, the governance of British sport wasn't broken. It really wasn't. There were some organisations doing some great stuff. We just thought we could kind of take it to the next level. And, and the kind of the lottery ticket buyer who ultimately pays for all of this had, had a right to, to know their money was yeah. going into really well-run organisations. Um, but overall, I thought I thought... The, the people who run all these national governing bodies, you know, the 60-odd who had to comply with the code, did a great job, and I take my hat off to them. And it was hard work. So I was very proud of our work on the Code for Sports Governance, but there was one thing that we didn't get right, and it's being looked at again. So when it came to diversity on boards, the code was very successful with gender, and I think that 40% of the boards across British publicly funded sport are now women, 40% of the directors, but it wasn't so successful with regard to some of the other protective characteristics, particularly race, also disability, LGBTQ+, etc. That's being looked at again, and I'm, I'm pleased it is because we need to do better with that. And it is difficult, isn't it, in that world of, of finite resource because you travel around the country you, you listen to people's views you're asking questions but they're telling you what they think and you're giving them permission to do that and often they're telling you very sensible things that in a world of finite resource you put in tomorrow but but you have to make decisions ultimately between um, all sorts of things that would improve your structure your strategy and your governance but you can't do everything you know and often to start yeah. doing something new you have to stop doing something that's traditionally been used in the organisation? I think that's right. I think um, I, I saw Sport England, have, I think about six to eight months ago, they started something called the Governance Academy, which is brilliant. It's a free resource available to all of sport, which with some fantastic good governance materials on there. I know that the FA who are, they've introduced a, a, a governance code for county FAs, 
So the mm -hmm. smaller geographical units that run football in their county, they again are offering a lot of, of central support. But I would also say if you're on a governance change as an organisation, do you think about timing? Because it, too much change too quickly can bring risks um, that you've got people trying to do too much, a lot of balls in the air, um, not necessarily focusing on what's the absolute key thing we need to do right now this minute so quality gets sacrificed and also that risk about that you know the organization has been this way for 100 years there are some kind of slightly quirky but rather brilliant things about it we don't want to lose those there is a risk they could get lost so it it it, it does take a bit of time I, I would always recommend you know set out a kind of roadmap for what you need to do and when you're going to do it and some of it's sequential as well yeah uh you know you might say well to 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 do to get where we need to be and do some of this governance change we need a new board well it's going to take us you know six months to to figure out what we want on our board and go and recruit for it so yeah roadmap is important join the conversation with the sports pro community follow us on twitter at sports pro find us on instagram at sportspro.media and connect to Sports Pro Media on LinkedIn, where you can also become a part of our specialist OTT community. Sports Pro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. So we can we've got the structure. We have we have um, a sensible way of, of decision making across the organisation and so on. Um, but ultimately, people follow people. Um, so if you think about your role as your role as, as CEO now, you know one of the things I think we don't talk enough about um, in sport, is, but in terms of leadership, is role modelling. So because ultimately, yeah. you know, you, you you create the culture that you role model in, in the organisation. Um, yeah. How do you draw that line between um, having a really focused, structured governance? code that's very clear who makes decisions who's empowered to do it and you getting out across your organization in an informal way having them understand your human you know your own quirks and intricacies and things as well just like everyone does um but can also have that informal dialogue as well as the formality of governance codes and so on how do you tread that line yeah well my my good friend Lindsay Tweddle, who's the head of corporate governance at Sport England, and who I work with on the governance code, um, we 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 sometimes used to look at each other and go, "Are we the Lennon and McCartney of this, or, or are we the Thelma and Louise?" You know, <laughs> which ways are going to go? But we we were super close, and it was one of the best kind of professional working relationships I've had in my career. Anyway, Lindsay always says, if you say to Lindsay what's governance about, she she'll give you she'll tell you some of the things I've said. And then she'll say it's always about the people and the right structures are no good without people with the right values and the right leadership inhabiting those structures. Um, and I think, again, it's a conversation an organisation needs to, to have with itself to say, what are our values? What are the, the, the kind of behaviours we absolutely, as an organisation, do want to role model so that when people look at us, they go, oh, Sorry to go back to the British Tiddlywinks Association, but oh, the British Tiddlywinks Association, what an inclusive organisation they are. You know, look how they support disability tiddlywinks and, you know, um, other aspects of tiddlywinks. Um, or, or if your value, the, the, the thing that you want to be is trusted, we want people to trust us. And then, you know, you've got to think about how you, you work to make sure that they do. And then it's down to all of us. And this is where you're absolutely right, Matt. It's down to all of us as leaders to um, make sure that we are exhibiting and putting into practice the, the right values and the right behaviours. And another great word I love, and we hear a lot of, what does it really mean, is that as leaders, we should be inclusive. And what does inclusion mean? Um, well, I have my own definition of, of it, which simply means that, you know, everybody who shows up to your organization whether it's it's like as a participant in your sport or a member of your staff or whatever can, can really bring their best self and they don't feel they need to be to put on a mask or to put on an act to come because that's how you get the best out of people um so and and you know it's well matt i i think probably if if you like me 
you've probably done a lot of thinking about your own leadership and and I can tell that from some of the things you've said like you know Matthew Syed's book I think is is brilliant I've been lucky to have a few kind of formal programs along the way which has really helped me I'm not saying I always get it right I'm sure some often I, I, I get it wrong but it is something I think about a lot um, and the things that I kind of prioritize and try to bring to it are listening mm-hmm. proper engaged listening to really understand what what people are saying really understand it and make sure that everybody knows they can speak their mind um, that's really key um, yes be um, welcoming to difference all that cognitive diversity that we want and and people bringing their own styles and somebody's working style over here may differ from somebody else's over here you know this person likes to pick up the phone and have a chat this person hates that and wants to do everything in writing via email and that can bring a clash just recognize Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with either point of view let it be just let it be and it'll figure itself if we all respect each other it'll figure itself out and those three things are they they different in the way you act as the ceo of your organization pushing for more diversity in, in football, so representing the organisation externally and trying to encourage the whole football industry to be more diverse. Do, do you focus on any different areas, you think, when you, when you talk to people externally? I think one of the things that I bring out externally is um, on occasion, and if it's needed, a bit of fight. And it can be needed occasionally. Yeah. You know, if, if uh, somebody has... I, in our view, not over has, has overlooked the interests of women in the game. I will not hesitate to tell them, um, in a professional manner, Matt. But there'll be no, they won't be left unclear as to um, our disappointment. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Um, if I had a team member who maybe you know made a mistake or not done something right, I wouldn't. I'd, I'd address that in a completely different way. I wouldn't give them a bollocking. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) you know, I'd try and be more, okay, listen, this wasn't right. What went wrong? How do do we think about it? How are we going to put it back, make it better? You know, and and actually in fairness, the the external piece, I'd probably do it that way. You you always want to move on into the space of how are we going to do this differently next time? rather than dwelling on what went wrong. Um, you always want to move on in, in, into that space. But I think there's a lot of, of, of crossover. Again, I think as a, an organisation, as a leader of your organisation, you, you, you need to have clarity of message. You need to know what that is. You, you know, your view on an issue can probably always be reduced to three bullet points, no matter what the issue is, probably even only two, know what they are. Um, I, it, it's different with the team. And the staff and the internal stakeholders, because you you probably want to get into a fuller explanation and understanding, and not not just kind of parrot two bullet points at them, saying this is the view, this is the view, because that's a bit kind of top down yeah. when it comes to your internal working. Okay, so let, let's um, let's just as we close out, maybe put the uh, the governance. Um, and leadership piece aside a little bit. Um, on the back of the, the last 12 months we've been through, um, what do you think, if you, if you map forward for the next sort of five to 10 years, what do you think are gonna be the most challenging areas uh, for any CEO to get their heads around that might or might not be related to what we've talked about so far? Um, great question. Um, so I think, question I, I think the big issues that are going to be on the agenda are um diversity mm-hmm. that's not going anywhere i think it's rightly so um covid i'm i'm afraid to say i think i think as a as a race we will manage it because we are an absolute genius of race sometimes we're absolute idiots other times what we're doing to the planet but my goodness when we put our brains to it i think we'll manage it i'm not sure we'll ever quite get rid of it we might we might need to move into management for for some years. Yeah. Um, tech change, I think, is going to be big. Globalization is interesting because um, I think we were. If you'd asked me at the beginning of 2020, pre-COVID, globalization would have been on the list. 
I think that's still going to happen. But what it's going to look like in a post-COVID world, I'm not quite sure. Um, I think that mar markets will still, if you think about things like content, you know, the, the, that's, that's still going to happen. You know, we still have these wonderful things called phones. We can put in our pocket and get the greatest content in the world beamed directly to, to our phones at any time we want it. So that's still going to happen. But I, I wonder how connected as a species we're going to be after when all this is over. I wonder if we're going to lose some of that. I wonder if there's going to be a little more emphasis on localism. Um, I often tell the story, you know, um, I, I, lucky old us, my, my household, my family, we used to have three foreign holidays a year. Be like Canary Islands in the spring, Mediterranean for two weeks in the summer, Canary Islands again in the autumn. Last year, we managed three days in Hastings. And you know what, Matt? I bloody loved it. It was brilliant. It was it was like as good as my any of my foreign holidays. Um, and I'm not sure what my husband would say to this, but I've not missed them. And I'm not sure I'm that bothered about ever having one ever yeah. again. Um, and another thing, which is, you know, very personal, is that... Um, I, I'm obsessed with BBC Spring Watch and Autumn Watch and Winter Watch. I think it's one of the things that's kept me sane and, and kept probably lots of people in the country sane. And, you know, I have a tree <laughs> outside our front garden. And I've looked at that tree for, for a year and loved it, never got tired of looking at it. And, and, and this is very real. I'm thinking when I have what I consider to be a beautiful tree, like, you know, 20 metres away from our front door, why do I need to travel anywhere? I get endless pleasure from looking at that. And I yeah. just wonder if we're going to be all a little bit more focused. That's one of the things we're going to keep. I hope localism doesn't become parochialism. I hope we will be global as a race in the things we need to be global about, like conquering this pandemic, like climate change. But I have to say a little bit more focus on our neighbourhoods and communities and what's on our doorstep, a little bit more care about those, I don't think is a, a bad thing. You asked me about what CEOs have to think of, and I've wandered off to talk about trees. <laughs> I'm well away from business. I think it's a really relevant um, <laughs> a really relevant challenge for, for all of us in the in the sports industry because you know where that digitally empowered global um, economy and global sports market takes us to it alongside um, sort of uh, the climate change imperative to stay local as we touched on earlier alongside increasingly isolationist politics alongside um, the fact that the world's going to have a three four five year economic dip undoubtedly coming out of covid that's going to challenge all of our pockets you know yep. how those two things fit together yep. and what that means for yep. our global football leagues if they're indeed a yep. global football league is viable or politically credible um it, it is fascinating stuff and I've, i have no idea where it's going to end up to also but it does feel like something that that kind of macro level of things a ceo needs to think about 10 years out needs to be at the needs to be at the top of the list um, yeah. So, so what we normally do to to close these pods out is ask some very tough questions, if that's all right. Um, yep. I, I, and the first of those is, um, so if you have one top tip um, for everybody, so they're listening to this podcast, um, bless them if they're listening to our to our governance special, or running out jogging in the morning, looking at the countryside, thinking about governance, or whatever they're doing. <laughs> Um, what, would, what would your top tip be? Like where to start to take this back into the office or back into their working day at least? Um, you know, tomorrow. What, what would be one thing they could think about doing that would make it be a positive step forward in this space? Well, I'm going to say a couple of things. Actually, firstly, the way to don't don't be scared of governments and don't think it's a really dry subject because actually it's brilliant. It makes the most compelling drama. <laughs> um, and I always say if you want to know. Everything there is to know about governance, read or watch Shakespeare's history plays because that's what they were about, their studies in power. And, it, and if, you, if there's, you don't want to get into that because there's barriers of language or whatever, 
Game of Thrones, which is heavily influenced by Shakespeare's history plays. And what is Game of Thrones about? It's about power and what good and bad leaders look like. Um, so that's the first thing. Enjoy it and find the the, the compelling drama in it. Um, would it be remiss of me to say, Matt, that in all the dramas over the, the European Super League, part of me was sitting here with my popcorn going, what, what's going, blimey, what's going on, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And just it, the drama, the theatre of it was was so gripping. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is um, I understand these principles that we've talked about. You know, how is power exercise? Is it done transparently? Is it done with getting lots of voices in the room? And you can apply them in any situation. You you can analyse um, organisations, teams, individuals, and you can then start thinking about yourself and your situation. So, so maybe start bringing, just building this into your thinking. I've got to make a decision here. How am I going to do it? It's, it's these are very applicable in a, in a principles in, in applicable way. Okay, and the, and the second one, if you could sum up your key message from this podcast in ten words or less, what would you say? Governance will always be with us because human beings will always strive for power. And what governance is about is trying to protect the decision-making process from the kind of worst side of human nature. It was more than 10 words, but... Very good. Yeah, I'm afraid our governance code says we, we can't handle more than 10. Um, no, I'm only kidding. Um, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> listen thanks everything. and final one would be how, how do people get hold of you so they find you on linkedin what's the best way to get hold of you if they've got questions or more importantly want to understand about the the work that women in football do uh yeah linkedin um so we are at women in football on twitter womeninfootball.co.uk info at womeninfootball.co.uk if you want to email and at jane Purden on twitter as well Fantastic. Well, listen, Jane, thanks ever so much for taking time with us on this Monday morning of all mornings to, to spend time uh, recording a podcast. We really appreciate it. All the best of luck with all your work of women in football. And maybe in a, in a year's time when this crazy old world's evolved a little bit, you'll come on again and give us the, the slightly more advanced version of, of everything that's in your head around how to structure better organisations. So thanks ever so much. It's been a real pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. The Playbook podcast is published by SportsPro and is part of a wider series delivering agenda-free, pragmatic advice on how to navigate your organisation through change. To explore the library and find out about the Playbook Lab's residential executive training programme, head to sportspromedia.com slash playbook.